Hey guys, how's everyone doing today? Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney. And I am Patrick. And I'm hitting a whole bunch of furniture next to me. You are. Turning things around. The lamp turned on. Again, I always turn the lamp on. <laughs> it's one of those damn touch lamps as well. Yeah. I'm a little sick. It's like the infirmary here in our house. We it is. <laughs> I have Again. a cold. It's not COVID. I don't know what it is. It's like fluey cold. And then my oldest daughter had it too. So yep. everyone else is healthy. Too. Yeah. Just can't get past it. Just one of those things. So if I sound a little not myself, I'm on Tylenol cold and flu medicine. The good stuff. Makes me a little bit loopy. How are you, Pat? I'm good. It's Friday. Yay. Fourth of July weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Relaxing. I'm good. Hope everybody has a safe and happy and exciting weekend Absolutely. out there. And before we get started, I don't think there's any other business we have to take care of, huh? Nope. Just uh, if you haven't already, make sure you check our Instagram for the winner of uh, yes. book. Yes. This this will be uploaded on Sunday, and we will have the winner posted on our Instagram. So be sure to check if you entered to see if it's you. And um, oh, we do have a shout out. Okay. We like to shout out some um, podcasts that we find and that we love. And the other day I began listening to a podcast called The Crime Chronicles, and I found myself thoroughly enjoying it. Savannah and Delaney are awesome, and I felt like I was just sitting down catching up with on some true crime with my girlfriends. So I highly recommend their episode called The Bizarre Disappearance of Lars Mittank, I think is how you say his last name. World words fail me to describe how baffling this case is. So please go and check out the Crime Chronicles. Listen to them everywhere you listen to podcasts. You're not going to regret it. Awesome, yeah. And with that said, let's up the energy a little bit. Psych myself up here because it's yeah, going to be a let's good go. episode today. It's going to be a long one because our short episodes ever happen. It's going to be a long one, and it was. I had to everybody leave Patrick a hate comment on Twitter. We have a Twitter now at Evil Pudding Pod. So go leave him a hate comment there because he won't let me do a two parter. <laughs> oh, I can make it one. I'll edit it so it's one. <laughs> you can't cut out anything important though. <laughs> I never do. I never do. But without further ado, let's stop babbling and let's get started. It got so much attention at the time. Are you surprised it hasn't gone down in the books like a Bundy, like a Manson? I'm I'm really surprised that he, quote, has not gotten the notoriety that uh, Ted Bundy got, uh, Charles Manson got, because to me, he was more brutal than Ted Bundy. And he was more brutal than than Manson, because Manson was chicken. He had his people do the killing for him for the most part, that I'm aware of. Again, Bundy killed his victims. Knowles killed his victims. So, if you haven't guessed yet, we are talking about John, or sorry, Paul John Knowles, the Casanova killer. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him before, Pat? Not by his real name, but by his killer name. The, the cool killer. name, which I hate that they give yeah, him cool no, names. I've definitely heard of that one. I just love that clip because anybody that calls... Manson a chicken is hilarious to me because first of all he was he was a, little, he, he was a big chicken because he didn't do his own right, shit right. but 
you don't usually associate Manson with being no, a chicken. No, I know. So I love that. I know. And this, that was the, um, that clip was from a documentary that I'm going to be referring to a lot in here, 11 Alive. And that was, um, the detective that discovered one of the crime scenes that we're okay. going to discuss. So yeah, he referred to Paul Knowles as more brutal than Bundy. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, okay. I'm bringing you back to 1974, the year of the serial killer. It was aptly dubbed the year of fear. And if you've been here a while with us, you can guess why. <laughs> yeah, seventies were a real big uh, serial killer time. What a time to be alive, right? Yeah, seventy four especially. That was right after a bunch of them, and Zodiac was still on the loose. And what? Who was it? Well, during that year, John Wayne Gacy had already killed two young men. Ted Bundy, Dennis Rader, who's BTK, and Coral Watts were also all active during this time. Right. It was said that upwards, this is nuts, it was said that upwards of 450 serial killers were active in the U.S. during that year. Yeah, and there's there's, there's, some, there's a bunch that were unsolved too, right? Because it took, it took about yeah. Zodiac. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. killers in California too, which was right after the Zodiac. I think that was like 72. Don't they think that Bundy is responsible for that? He was one. The Zodiac was a possible connection. Bundy was, but they... I guess because it fits. They, it fit what his model was because it was like what was it? girls with brown hair parted brown down hair the middle. Down the middle, exactly. Very specific, not to be Bundy, but, uh, but I, we'll I think see. they they determined he was in another state when one of the killers during happened. the time that happened. Yeah. Anyway, so during that year, what was it? Four hundred and fifty serial killers were active in the U.S. To give you an idea, over the past decade leading up to this very day, like as of today. There are 65 active serial killers in the U.S. at any given time, and even that's too many. So imagine 450 active ones. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> but there is one serial killer that is rarely spoken about, and it's actually kind of ironic that he isn't, quote, notorious, because his only goal was to be as famous as his idols, John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, according to him. Like, what a life goal, you know? Yeah, two of the most famous gangster or gangster duos of like in history. So the reason I've decided to bring any attention to this asshole is because there are still thought to be many bodies out there somewhere tied to him. So I'm hopeful that one day answers will be given to a family in mourning that's been in mourning for the past 50 years. Almost. I am speaking today about Paul John Knowles, better known as the Casanova Killer, probably one of the most vile human beings in history. <laughs> Knowles is known to have killed 18 people of all ages, races, and genders. However, before his death, he confessed to taking 35 lives. And I tend to think that that's one thing he's being honest about, unfortunately. Although he was killed in a police shootout before he could ever be held accountable for his crimes, Knowles kept a horrifically detailed tape-recorded diary that described all of his monstrous crimes. And I can't wait to get to that part of the story because it's it, it does play out like a movie. So it's super interesting. Well, we've seen that a lot with a lot of serial killers. Yes. It was the one that was, uh, I can't remember his name, we covered it not too long ago. He had a whole journal. Of every kill. Uh, oh, yeah. The um, Kansas City Butcher. Yeah, the Kansas City yeah. Butcher. He had a whole That's journal right. on everything, every torture, every kill. They uh, like to a, do it. His coding to it and all. So that it's like the, it's one of their like, it's like a weird OCD type habit, right? For right. Serial killers. It's like their version of control of their own chaos. It's weird. Yeah. It's really weird. 
They enjoy doing it. So, yeah, it is almost like an OCD habit. His victims, guys, are still being identified as of 2011. And that's fairly recent. So today I want to shine some light on his many senseless murders in hopes that investigators never give up trying to give these families some answers. Because there are still families out there looking for answers. Yeah. So let's get started. We always start with the early lives and childhoods of these twisted individuals we dissect here on Evil Pudding. However, there isn't a lot known about Knowles because he died before, you know, we could get too much out of him. But here is what we do know. He was born on April 25th, 1946. He's a Taurus. That's going to kind of come into play later on. <laughs> he gets into astrology. Of course uh, he, he does. Course yeah. He, does. he was born in Orlando, Florida to mom Bonnie and dad Thomas. So we have a Florida. Well, this case goes all across the U.S. He's nomadic. But we're out of California for now. But we're out of California for now. It feels like we're always in California. Y'all get a break. <laughs> So, Knowles had two older brothers and sisters. One of his brothers was interviewed for a documentary by Eleven Alive. You're going to hear me, like I said, referring to this doc a lot throughout the episode. But it was super informative. So, I highly recommend that you guys go watch it. I'll leave a link to watch it in the show notes on YouTube. It's free. Anyways, Knowles' brothers said that their home environment was abusive. Very abusive. From what I gather, Knowles' father... Wasn't the greatest guy. But that didn't stop Paul from acting up. In fact, he loved the attention that being bad brought him. (laughs) At the tender age of seven, just seven. So in 1953, the little shit was going around stealing other kids' bicycles. That's an early start even for serial killers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And when he would get in trouble for it, his brother said that he would just rage out like, like super angry. Like what? Rawr. (laughs) Very descriptive. I like it. Thank you. (laughs) Then his dad would beat his ass and the vicious never ending cycle of violence would just start, start all over again, accomplishing nothing. Yeah. His dad's beating his ass and he's (laughs) rawr. So his dad beats his ass. So he's rawr. Yeah. It just never ends. Exactly. So Paul just thrived off the attention that being bad got him, especially from the females. He also idolized not-so-great people such as John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, and Babyface Nelson. He didn't like Al Capone, though, because he thought that he was just too tame for his taste. He had standards, okay? Which is hilarious because <laughs> Al Capone wasn't tame, but no, he wasn't Babyface or John Dillinger. Right, or right, right, right. Now, all kids have their obsessions. There was one point when our youngest was literally obsessed with unicorns. Do you remember the Target runs? Oh, my God, it's a unicorn. It's a freaking unicorn. <laughs> I remember. We had unicorn fucking everything in this house. But Knowles, Cereal even. It's true. But Knowles had a darker obsession. He would just devour any book he could get his hands on that had to do with criminals and mobsters, etc. And, like, that's pretty normal. I do much the same, but not at seven. You know, no, not at seven. Not at seven. No. <laughs> So it's safe to say that he didn't have great role models aside from the murderers that he yeah, idolized. But you also like learn about this stuff and just are curious about it. Right. You don't idolize the people. He in wanted it. to be like them. He idolized the people in it. At the age of 17, Knowles escalated and was committing break-ins in grand larceny. He was sent to the Dozier School for Boys, a reform school operated by the state of Florida in the panhandle town of Mariana. Reform, reform school. Guys. 
We could do a whole freaking episode, and I just might, on the Dozier School for Boys. You're not going to believe this. To give you an idea about how horrible that, and I say school loosely, but how horrible that school was, here's just a few facts, and I'll do my best to be brief because it has very little to do with the story, but then again, it might have helped shape him into the monster yeah, that he became. schools in the 1940s and 50s were basically kids' prisons. Truly. Okay, so the school was open and state-funded from January 1st, 1900 to June 30th, 2011. Pretty recent. Just over the past decade, like this past decade, hundreds of men came forward with horrendous stories of rape, abuse, and torture from when they attended. There were 81 confirmed deaths on the campus However, only 31 bodies were said to have been buried on the grounds that the school had designated for a cemetery. There's a lot wrong with that last sentence. <laughs> yeah, 50 bodies missing. Yeah. Boys would check into the school and never be seen again. It was like Hotel California for children. Scary. When the school was demolished in 2015, the remains of 50 people were discovered. Yeah, there's the rest of the 81s. 81 confirmed deaths, remember? Yeah, they probably just discarded them in the basement or something like that. It was just disgusting. No one that attended there was reformed. They were just taught how to become more withdrawn, silenced, and tortured. If you ever get a second, look it up. It's appalling that our taxpayer dollars kind of funded that shit. You know what I mean? So yeah, if Paul wasn't a twisted human being before he went into that reform school, he certainly would be by the time he walked out. So needless to say... Knowles left there not reformed at all. After he left the school, he fell right back into a life of crime. No surprise there. In 1965, when Knowles was just 19, a policeman stopped him while he was driving a stolen car. So he stole a car and got pulled over. Knowles grabbed the officer's gun and forced him into the stolen vehicle. He drove around with the cop a while before releasing him two hours later, completely unharmed. So he kidnapped an officer. Kidnapped You're not picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> kidnapped a cop. Nels was, of course, charged with kidnapping, and he was sentenced to one to five years in state prison. So here he is in prison, a young man with needs. It was here that he found that he actually enjoyed having sex with men more than women. And although he would try to sexually assault several women in the future, um, and I'll go over some of those instances, the only way that Knowles was able to climax was through sex with men. It's just something to keep in mind. I don't know. He's not here to speculate or discuss it, so I'm not going to talk a lot about it. But just keep that in mind for the rest of the story. And also the time period in which the story takes place. Right. So anyways, just two years and eight months after his five-year sentence, Knowles obtained parole and was a free man. During this time at a bar, he met a woman by the name of Jackie Knight and her husband, and they all quickly became friends. Paul was even invited to hang out with them back at their home as a family with their young children, and their children reportedly loved Paul, and Paul was really close to them. However, Paul just struggled to remain out of trouble. Of course. On April 18, 1968, Duval County Police caught him in the act of trying to break into a residence. So he was sent back to Rayford Prison to finish his sentence. However, during this time, 
Jackie Knight and her husband split up. Whether or not this had anything to do with the charming Paul, I have no idea. But as Jackie and Paul continued to write each other letters, they fell in love. Of course. Of course. He was finally released on May 10th, 1970 with, as a parole officer later put it, $25 in his pocket, a new suit, and no responsibilities. Great combo. Really set up for success. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So... Knowles and Jackie married as soon as he left Rayford Prison, but that relationship didn't really work out. Shocking, I know. I wonder why. She moved him in with her kids, and it just didn't didn't last. No one would employ Knowles with his record and all, so he just kind of gave up looking for work altogether, and he started drinking and hanging out with his bros and probably just was up to no good, right? Of course. Things were bad. So bad that Jackie just took her kids and moved away to Macon, Georgia, and had their marriage in old. However, the two did remain in touch and remain friends for the rest of Noel's life. Yeah. She was like, I can't wait for you to get out of prison. He gets out of prison and he goes right back to drinking and yeah. probably criminal activity. And she's like, fuck this, dude. I'm out. And then he was unable to keep looking for work. So he just, I'm sure he couldn't get it at first, so he stopped and went back to what he knows how to do. Right. It didn't take Knowles very long to get into trouble again. See? (laughs) (laughs) On September 15th, 1971, Knowles was convicted of breaking and entering with intent to commit a felony. And he was sentenced to three years. Only three years with a record like this. You'd think that they would look at his history and want to tag on a few years. But I guess the prisons were pretty overrun back then. I don't know. I mean, back in 1971, the maximum sentence for that offense was 15 years. So he got a sweet deal. Yeah, I don't understand Super sweet. It's like a third strike felony. Yeah. 15-year max, and here's three. Doesn't make any sense. Anyways, you think that's odd. Knowles even received furlough privileges after serving just one year. So in other words, he was granted leave so that he could temporarily just run free before reporting back to prison during the day. I'm sure by now that you know enough about him to know... What I'm about to say next. One day he just simply failed to return to prison. No way. I said (laughs) refailed. Failed to return. I combined two words. I hate it when that happens. (laughs) He returned failed. (laughs) He refailed to return to prison. (laughs) I think you refailed on that one. (laughs) I think I refailed on my Tylenol sinus. (laughs) Shit happens. It's all good. So when police caught up with him on December 6, 1972, he was enraged. Police say that he fought like a cornered cat before he was able to be subdued and returned to prison. So Paul's back in prison where he really just should have stayed all along. By the way, if you're keeping track, this man has been in prison for over nine years of his life. That's half of his life almost at this point. Yeah. He's all he knows. This whole time, he was a loner by all accounts. The other inmates used to call him Rat, although there's no evidence that he was ever a police informer. In fact, I'd bet my entire life that he never did anything helpful for society. Yeah, I, I don't peg this kid as a rat. I'm sure he got it for some other reason. Yeah, I just acted like a rat, whatever that means. Anyways, one prison official actually described Knowles as the following. He said, quote, antisocial profiting neither from experience nor punishment. And there you have it. I agree. I I tend to agree. In other words, this man just doesn't give a fuck. Yep. So while Knowles wasn't busy making friends in prison, he was passing the time pursuing his new interest 
astrology. Yeah, of course. Horoscopes in the newspaper like were a thing every single day. I'm sure they still are. And he would act accordingly to them. He would read them every day. And he would be in a perfectly good mood, but if his horoscope said something bleak, he would quickly turn depressed and vice versa. Then he began to dabble with tarot cards. Especially, He apparently became quite good at reading them, too. Okay. Yeah. So with those interests, Knowles obtained a subscription to American Astrology Magazine. And in that magazine, he found the name Angela Kovic. Her mother was a renowned psychic. So she, like Knowles, loved the esoteric. And they bonded over that when he wrote to her. And the pair quickly fell in love. She would, ne- she would have never fallen for him how- had she known that he had violent tendencies. But he, of course, lied to her and told her that he was just in prison for a drug deal gone wrong. Right. So stupid. She found him endearing and in return gave him a nickname, Mad Dog Knowles. <laughs> After only like a couple of letters, she traveled across the country to visit Paul in Rayford Prison in September of 1973, where he just straight up proposed marriage to her and she gleefully accepted. In fact, she even hired him a lawyer paid for by her on her own dime named Sheldon Yavitz. And Sheldon was able to convince a judge to release Paul on parole so he could join Angela back in California. Oh, where we go to California. Here we go. How could they agree to something like that, especially with Knowles' record, him be released on parole? Well, according to parole board chairman Ray Howard, the board agreed to his parole for two reasons. First of all, he was due for release in a year anyways. And secondly, California officials had agreed to supervise him, which I didn't know was a thing. I mean, how well can he really be supervised? You know? Yeah, he's also not really a violent offender at this point. Not yet, yeah. So they're like, this dude's just a thief. We can keep an eye on him. And they also probably just wanted him the hell out of his state. In fact, there was likely another reason is my next point. Knowles would be leaving Jacksonville, Florida. And this is kind of where he got into all of his trouble. So maybe they thought, you know, different scenario. Yeah, get him out of the city. Maybe he can't get back in the same crowd. Exactly. So So, regardless of the why, Knowles was released May 14th, 1974. And he immediately caught a flight to San Francisco to meet his fiancee, Angela Kovic. However, unbeknownst to Paul, Angela had seen a psychic before his arrival, and this psychic had warned her of a very dangerous man in her life. So she was becoming more and more wary of her new man. In fact, she gave him a rather cold reception when he arrived at her home that day. In fact, Knowles would stay at her house for less than one week, and she didn't even stay there with him. She slept at her mom's house while he crashed at her place. That's how scared she had become of him. Ouch. Yeah, it sucks. Her rejection is thought to be Knowles' absolute breaking point. With her, he had felt like he was worshipped and he needed that, you know, for his ego. Mm-hmm. Now all that's gone and he was beyond hurt and furious, which isn't good. We've seen what happens when these psychopaths are furious. People tend to pay. We've seen it when Ted Bundy was rejected. It was the start of a horrific killing spree. A narcissistic psychopath being rejected is capable of a lot of harm. Yeah, for I, was, sure. I was about to say it's just like Ted, like Ted and that's what caused <clears> him to target a specific looking woman for all yeah. of his murders was that rejection yeah. of his. 
Now, with that said, Angela did nothing wrong. This is on Paul Knowles, not her. <laughs> you you should be able to break up with a dude, ladies. Like, yeah, not just a dude. You should be able to be like, oh, this dude's a psycho. I don't want to be with him. Absolutely. That's quite all right. It's not her fault. It's. I hate when people blame the woman who dumped him. Like, what is she supposed to do? Like, I don't know that they blame her. I think they just kind of... Reference it's, her. It's, it's referenced, and it's yeah. because of the way it's referenced, it's almost like implied. Like It is. Like, they, oh, you should have stayed was, with they, Well, they say this was the breaking point that turned him. It's like, it's almost like they're saying like, she's kind of guilty for turning him here. Yeah. But he's not. She was like, I see something bad. I'm fucking out of this. No, he's a freaking monster. And yeah, he's the one that did this, not you. So Knowles hopped on a plane and returned back to Jacksonville in a state of extreme agitation. In fact, the day he arrived back home, he got, he like got, went to a bar, got drunk, got into a bar fight. He beat up a bartender within an inch of his freaking life. This landed Knowles right back in jail. But by now, Knowles was far too mad at the world to risk going back to prison for violating parole. So he picked a lock and escaped on July 26, 1974. And this is where the horrific killing spree began. And now let's pause for an ad break. Welcome back. And we're back. <laughs> so now we get to the killing spree. And Coco's mad in the background. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Coconut. We're interrupting her. <laughs> puffing and puffing back there. I know. Okay, so it's the evening of July 26th, and Knowles had just escaped from jail, and he had intent to do some serious damage. But first, he needed to get away fast, and that would require a vehicle and money, neither of which he had. So he decided that a home invasion would be the best way to get these things. Sure, why not? He happened upon the home of 65-year-old retired school teacher Alice Curtis. Now, it's not known whether or not he broke into her home or if he used like his charms to get her to invite him in, but he got in. Yeah, or even if it was locked cuz we're talking about the back then, you know. What yeah, I mean? it might have been wide open, who knows. However, he eventually empowered, overpowered her. I almost said empowered her. Overpowered her, tied her up, and gagged her so that he could ransack her home. He focused on her valuables and just collected what he could as quickly as possible. He was in a hurry. Unfortunately, though, while Knowles was busy stealing from her, Alice's dentures were dislodged by her gag and forced down her throat. And by the time Knowles went to check on her, she wasn't breathing and she had choked to death. That sucks. Awful. Awful. Bless her heart. According to Knowles, he had never killed anyone before. So this was his first murder. It wasn't even an intention. It was like an oops murder. He didn't even really do anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I do, as well as investigators, believe that her death was, in fact, an accident. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that Knowles wouldn't have circled back to kill Alice after he had robbed her. Oh, yeah. We don't know what he would have done. We don't know. Uh, But with her murder, things were different now with Knowles. If he ever went back to prison, it would be as a murderer. And remember, Paul is out for notoriety. So if Paul is going to be, and I quote, the biggest of them all, as he would later tell his attorney, a spin on, if you're going to do it, do it right, I guess. Go big. Go big or go home. Anyways, to continue his effort to be the most notorious killer, he left Alice Curtis's residence with her white Dodge Dart 
and drove west to Jacksonville where he hid out at a friend's house for a short time. And I'm honestly surprised that he had friends, to be Those honest. Those some of the dudes he was running around doing criminal crap with. Must have been. Some little thieves that he ran, he ran with. That wouldn't rat him out. His next murder would be a week later, but this time it would be a double homicide. So he's not even playing around anymore. He's like, if I'm going to do this, let's Yeah, he's do like, this. I didn't mean to kill her, but fuck it. Let's just go kill people now. So this one, this one's rough. Um, trigger warning, children. The whole episode is a trigger warning. On August 1st, 1974, at around 6 p.m., Elizabeth Anderson and her 13-year-old daughter left their residence in Jacksonville's Pumpkin Hill area to visit a relative who had been ill. Her two younger daughters, 11-year-old Lillian Annette um, and 6-year-old Millette, remained home since their mother and sister wouldn't be gone long at all. Plus, the girls' dad, Jack Anderson, a fisherman, was due home in less than an hour so. You know, somebody's going to be home soon. Shortly before 7 p.m., Elizabeth Anderson called her daughters at the house just to make sure they were okay. And they assured her that everything was indeed fine. Like, mom, I'm fine. Stop worrying. However, when Jack Anderson arrived home at 7.20, he was delayed by a problem with his boat. The girls were nowhere to be found. The Andersons were convinced that Lillian and Millette had been kidnapped Jack Anderson told the news reporters, our children wouldn't do anything. Our children would do anything they were told to. I feel like someone broke into the house and took them away. We're just praying they will be returned. With public assistance, police conducted a 140 square mile search of northeastern Duval County, but they found just nothing. What added to the urgency of this case even more Both girls were asthmatic and suffered from a heart condition, and they both required medication that had to be taken multiple times a day. So they needed their medicine. And as a parent, I just can't imagine that feeling. It's just desperation. We know what happened to the girls thanks to Knowles' confession tapes. He said he had been in the middle of trying to abandon Alice Curtis's white Dodge Dart on a quiet residential street when he noticed the Anderson girls watching him. The Anderson girls were no no strangers to Knowles. In fact, Elizabeth Anderson, the girls' mom, was a close friend of Bonnie Knowles, Paul's mom. So Paul was absolutely convinced that these two little girls who knew him would tell their mother that they had seen Paul trying to abandon this vehicle that was stolen. So he coaxed little Lillian and Milette into the stolen car and drove them to a remote location where he strangled them both. After they were both deceased, he said he dumped them in a swamp. The girls' bodies were never found, and even those even though Knowles confessed to their daughter's murders, their case officially remains open to this day. Tragic. Yeah, I mean, no closure. A, well, it's it's not really a murder. Mm-mm. case it's, an, it's a missing person still and i can't have a murder without a body i'll touch more on it at the end of the episode i i circle back to to them but it's just so tragic now ne- you never have the closure you know it's either rip the band-aid off but you just living in that area that gray area of not knowing what happened to him i can't even fathom so this absolute monster the day after murdering those two babies fled to his ex-wife's house in macon georgia remember jackie knight yeah i remember her But before he arrived there, he had to stop to replenish his dwindling supply of cash. 
so he broke into the Atlantic Beach home of Marjorie Howie. Once in the home, he strangled her with her nylon stocking and escaped with cash and valuables, such as a television set that he later would gift to his ex-wife, but not before he claimed his fifth victim, a 13-year-old girl. So while driving to Macon to go and visit Jackie, Knowles picked up 13-year-old Ima Jean Sanders. Ima was strong-willed and independent. After her parents' divorce in 1968, she went to live with her dad in Beaumont, Texas, but she ran away frequently. So frequently, in fact, that Mr. Sanders unfortunately stopped notifying police when she left. Yeah, and you heard a lot about that in that time period. Yeah. Because when you talk about the hitchhiker killer, you had girls that were 12 to 18 years old and they would just hitchhike everywhere. Yep, everybody couple, did. And there were a couple of them, like that's like this one that ran away all the time and it was just like... You can't keep notifying police. Just, well, they yeah. did, even they did in some cases and the cops were like, all right, if we see her, we'll grab her. You know what I mean? Like we're, it's, It was very commonplace back then. So in, in July of 1974, Ima hopped on a bus to Warner Robins, Georgia, to go and see her mom and her stepfather. When she arrived at the bus station, she called her mom, and she told her she had arrived and asked if someone could come and pick her up, which her mom did. Ima had a four-year-old sister, little Sharon, who was beyond excited to see her big sister. They had a special relationship. See, just six months earlier, Ima had witnessed her other sister, younger sister, Charlotte, fall off the family's houseboat and drown. This had undoubtedly been such a trying year for Ima, and there's no doubt that she felt super protective of her four-year-old sister. So she readily agreed to babysit her on August 1st when her mom asked her to. So while she was at home babysitting, a group of Ima's older friends pulled up outside her house in a van. And according to her four-year-old sister, they slid open the doors and Ima Jean left the house, got into the van, and they all drove off, leaving Sharon home alone. Ima made sure to tell her little sister to lock the door behind her and that she would be right back. She wouldn't be long. That was the last time that Sharon would ever see her sister again. In Knowles' tape confession, he states that sometime in August 1974, he picked up a teenage hit- hitchhiker named Alma, Yeah, is what he says, not far from Warner, Warner Robbins. After taking her to a wooded area, he raped her and strangled her and left her body discarded between some trees. For reasons he never explained, yet I'm sure we can draw our own conclusions, he returned to her body to find that it had been mutilated by animals. He went on to, about like how much this upset him. Like, this really bothered him, which is strange for someone who just easily can assault and slaughter a young child. Like, why does it bother you? Not really, because it's all on his terms, right? Like, he's, it's a control yeah. thing again. He went back, nine out of ten chance, he went back to, you know. Have relations with the corpse. Assault the body. Mm-hmm. And uh, his plans were fucking foiled, so he was pissed. Like, this wasn't what I wanted. Nasty ass. He says the girl's jawbone had been detached from her skull. And he just couldn't bear to look at it anymore, so he left. And we'll circle back to that towards the end as well. So by the last week of August, Knowles was still staying with Jackie in Macon, Georgia. And he was, yet again, short on funds. And she was dropping hints that he was overstaying his welcome. She was like, well, it's nice to see you. (laughs) Have a good trip. It's been real real nice. (laughs) So he finally left. 
And like I said, he needed money. So driving through Masella in Crawford County, he knocked on the door of 24-year-old Kathy Sue Woods Pierce. That's a long name. It's a very long name. Who is home alone with her three-year-old little boy, Joel. We're just guessing here, but somehow he entered the home. Whether he used his charm or he forced his way in, who knows? Either way, he's inside. He rips the telephone out of the wall. It's the old-fashioned telephones that were in the wall, which made Kathy scream, of course. And this enraged Knowles, like, we're going to get caught. Shut up. So he began wrapping the cord so tightly around Kathy's neck, it was practically buried into her flesh. And she soon died from strangulation. Of course. While all of this was happening, three-year-old Joel was watching helplessly. That's awful. He also watched as Knowles dragged his mother's body into the bathroom, leaving it there on the floor before leaving with whatever cash he could find. Thankfully, he left the baby unharmed. Thank God. Yeah. He doesn't seem like a baby killer at this point. Nothing would surprise me with this fool, though. No, not at all. Kathy's boyfriend's father would be the one to discover the brutal crime scene and notify police. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations did try to question three-year-old Joel, but he was just too little, you know, to give him any info. Yeah. So, and he was traumatized, too. Yeah, he just watched his mama get strangled. So, for the time, it was just a mystery as to who took the life of the 24-year-old mom. So, after murdering Kathy, Knowles headed north, eventually arriving in Lima, Ohio, on September 3rd, 1974. Our next case next week will be Ohio-based case. Oh, nice. Mm Mm-hmm. By the way, it doesn't appear that Knowles' route across the U.S. was very planned out. It was really random. I think that he just wanted to put as much distance between himself and each of his crimes to evade police at the time. That's all that's going on. Remember, he's an escaped convict. Yeah, he's not trying to get caught. He's trying to get away from you. He's not going to stick around. Anyways, Knowles was a heavy drinker, so he would always stop at bars and drink away his stolen funds. Well, the day he arrived in Lima, he was drinking at the Scots Inn Bar. Now, remember, he's charming, so he he quickly struck up a long conversation with a guy named William Bates. Now, William Bates couldn't have been more different from Knowles. Bates was 32 and a really successful accountant for the Ohio Power Company. The bartender at the Scots Inn knew Bates well because he would usually stop in for a drink after work. The bartender later stated that he watched Bates chat with a man who was tall young, and redheaded, which describes Knowles to a T. He said that he watched the two young men leave around the same time as well. William Bates's wife soon reported her husband missing, and the police investigating his disappearance found an abandoned white Dodge Dart, sound familiar, yep. near the Scots Inn. Before long, they were able to trace the car back to Alice Curtis, Knowles' first victim. Mm-hmm. This link confirmed their suspicion that the successful young businessman was a victim of foul play. He didn't just leave on his own fruition, you know. Then on Thanksgiving Day of 1974, a hunter found the nude body of William Bates in the woods. He had been found with electrical tape wrapped around his wrists and gagged before being strangled to death and left out in the elements for a month before being found. Lovely. Knowles had taken this poor man's money, credit card, and also his white Chevy Impala before leaving the state of Ohio. So he's now driving a white Chevy Impala. Later on down the road, it would be discovered through an examination of credit card transactions that Knowles left the 
left the state of Ohio and drove to Missoula, Montana, and then south to Utah. Pardon my phone, Dean. Oh, here we go. (laughs) On September 12th, he ended up in Nevada where he, once again, found himself broke. He needed money, so he went hunting. He had somehow acquired a gun in his travels. Not legally, I'm sure. And he used that gun to overpower a couple named Emmett and Lois Johnson. Mr. and Mrs. Johnson were in their 60s, and they were vacationing in their camper when they had an unfortunate encounter with Knowles. Knowles tied them both up, shot both of them behind the left ear, and walked out with all the cash they had on them along with their credit cards. He's ruthless. He's just horrible. Horrible human being. Their bodies weren't discovered until five days later in their camper. Just incredibly sad and incredibly senseless, you know? Gosh, extremely. But by the time their bodies were discovered, Knowles had long fled the state. And guess where he went? California. Texas. Oh. <laughs> He's making his rounds, right? He's just driving all over. He's driving a big-ass circle. Starting in Florida, then moved to Georgia, then Ohio. Reminds me a lot of Ted Bundy, who was also a nomadic serial killer around the same time frame, too. So it's crazy. We make a lot of comparisons. People compare the two a lot because they are very similar. And this is another way that they're similar. So around September 21st, Knowles was driving through Seguin, Texas, near where I grew up. So he's driving along, enjoying the scenery in his stolen vehicle, and he spots 42-year-old Charlene Hicks outside a rest stop on Interstate 10. There's a few accounts as to what happened, but according to one, Charlene's car had broken down and Knowles pulled over to ask if she needed help. So chivalrous. Another account states that Hicks was actually on her way to Chili Cook-Off in San Marcos, and she had just stopped there to rest. Either way. <laughs> Anything be more Texas than driving to San Marcos for a chili, chili cook-off? cook-off, which is, I mean, altogether you possible. The river afterwards, I guess. I don't know. Super fun to do, by the way. Either way, Charlene never arrived in San Marcos, and her family quickly reported her missing. The Guadalupe County Sheriff's Department conducted a search and found Charlene's car at the rest stop in Seguin off of I-10. This prompted them to conduct a grid search on September 25th in the countryside, around the rest stop, and unfortunately, they found Charlene's nude body in some bushes near the highway. Charlene had been strangled, and she had torn skin all over her body from being dragged through a barbed wire fence that separated the brush where she left, where she was left in the road. Unfortunately, Charlene's murder remained unsolved until Knowles would later take credit for it two months later. So exactly two days after murdering Charlene Hicks, Knowles found himself in Birmingham, Alabama. He's literally doing a circle back. He is. He's doing a circle back. He's circle back boy. (laughs) He's literally all over the map. Yeah. But it was in Birmingham that Knowles met 49-year-old Ann Dawson. Ann was a fiery, outgoing beautician, and he must have found her fairly intriguing because he actually traveled with her for six whole days before deciding to kill her on September 29th. So... Yeah, who knows? In his confession tapes, all he said of her murder was that he had grown, quote, tired of her. So he killed her and dumped her body in the Mississippi River. 
Unfortunately, Anne's body was never found. So we're never going to know what truly happened to her. It's just so senseless, so tragic. Yeah, you're not going to find her if you dumped her. In so he city. obviously liked her enough to like hang out with her. He's like, hey, for you're a while. cool. And then they're driving around. He's Six like, oh, days is a over a week. I mean, it's a while. You're fucking annoying me. Like, yeah, just put a bullet in you and throw you into the river. He's just ruthless. So for the next few weeks or so, Knowles traveled. He drove through Oklahoma, Missouri, Iowa, and Minnesota. During this time, it's not known known if he left any more casualties in his wake. He didn't confess to any murders during this time, so it's hard to say. I I don't know. Unless he had a stockpile of cash, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he stopped somewhere and murdered somebody. I'm sure if you look, you know, in the missing persons or stuff like that in those four states in that two-week period, early October 1974, you'll find a few people that just disappeared. For sure. But on October 16th, while driving through Marlboro, Connecticut... Knowles walked up to the home of 16-year-old Don Wine, who unfortunately was home alone. Knowles knocked on the door, forced his way inside, and tied Don up before raping her. Don's 35-year-old mother, Karen Wine, then arrived at home, and she too was tied up and raped. After Knowles was done, he strangled both mother and daughter with silk stockings. Before he left their home, Knowles took money, a tape recorder, and some records from Don's record collection. Later, Knowles would give those stolen records to his ex-wife, Jackie Knight's children, when he visited them again. Good Lord. I know. Knowles, having just committed another double homicide, left the state of Connecticut and then drove to Virginia. Okay. So he really is just everywhere. He stopped in the small town of Woodford and either persuaded or forced 53-year-old Doris Harvey to let him into her home. This is so sad. It's all sad, but... Knowles later confessed that he told Mrs. Harvey that all he wanted was her gun. So she led Knowles to her husband's study, where he kept his guns, and she gave Knowles her husband's rifle. Well, Knowles checked to see if the gun was loaded. It was, and then he proceeded to shoot Mrs. Harvey in the head before just leaving. Good God. It's just awful. This dude is ridiculous. Oh, he's just a freaking monster. So from Virginia... Knowles made his way back from where he came from, Florida. And it was in Key West that Knowles picked up a pair of young hitchhikers headed to Miami under the ruse of being a caring gentleman. He said he would gladly take the girls to Miami, and they readily agreed. Remember, he's a charming son of a bitch, so he works his magic. Knowles had every intention of killing these girls, but luckily a policeman stopped him for a vehicle violation. He was let go with a warning, but Knowles knew that the girls had been seen in his car with him, and he couldn't take the chance of murdering them. So He's not he, let, he let them go. No, he actually, and I didn't want to say this at first, but he actually is very intelligent. You, you can see by a lot of things he does. Like, he doesn't stay in one place after he kills. He immediately leaves. You know, this right here, you know, he's pulled over. He knows the girls were spotted with him. So if those girls turn up dead or missing, the cop's going to be like, I saw the car and the dude. Can you imagine being those girls when the story broke of all the people that this guy murdered? Because you know they recognized him. And that he planned to murder them. Yeah. Horrifying. Okay. So this is where it gets crazy. Sweet. While in Florida, Knowles went and met with his lawyer. Do you remember Sheldon Yavitz? The one that that his girlfriend hired? yeah. Yeah, his girlfriend hired for him. He had something he had to give him. Knowles left Sheldon with a set of audio tapes. What could be on those tapes? Gee, I wonder. So let's back up a little. 
Remember Sheldon Yavitz was hired by Knowles' ex-girlfriend, Angela Kovic, back when they were a thing, and Sheldon was successful in securing a parole for Knowles. Now, Yavitz, what, Yavitz wasn't the cleanest of lawyers out there, I don't reckon. I doubt. <laughs> His clients included Cuban extortionists and wealthy jewel thieves who gifted Yavitz expensive jewelry and sports cars in lieu of money. So this is the kind of guy we're dealing with. Yavitz just automatically automatically assumes that all of his clients are guilty. But he really only knew Knowles as a petty criminal, not a murderer. So Knowles was a lightweight in comparison to the rest of his clientele. Yeah. He thought. Well, when Knowles visited Yavitz's office in October, Knowles handed over these tapes and made a shocking admission. Knowles said, I am a mass murderer. And remember the term serial killer had not yet been coined. Right, 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 right. So, um, just a mass murderer. I'm a mass murderer. Knowles' goal in doing this, we know it's to become an icon. Yeah. You know, he wants to be notorious. He wants to be iconic. And he wants to go out in a blaze of glory like Bonnie and Clyde. He wants notoriety. So in giving Yavitz these confession tapes with admissions to over 30 murders, Knowles would surely seal his fate if he ever died in a yeah, police right, shootout. Right. Sorry, I just hit the table. I got excited. Um, he would seal his fate as one of the most notorious killers of all time. So, way to shoot for the stars, Paul. And Knowles knew that his days were numbered now, especially since he had committed so many murders and in various death penalty states as yeah, well. <laughs> he's killed people in Florida. Texas. Death penalty, Texas, mm-hmm. death penalty. A few, of, I think Georgia has Georgia. a death penalty. A few of them have death penalties for sure. So anyways, Yavitz agreed to keep the tapes and vowed not to listen to them until after Knowles' death. Because then, you know, he could be you held in contempt. Like, oh, he died. And then he's just listening to it like, holy Guys, shit. this story gets so juicy towards the end with those tapes. I can't wait. So this is just kind of a little warm up. But so Knowles left Yavitz's office happy because no matter what happened to him from here on out, he's going to be famous one day. Piece of shit. So Knowles wanted to head back to Macon, Georgia. After leaving Florida. Remember, he had stolen records he had to give to his ex-wife's children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So weird. But on the way there, it is suspected, not known, that he may have killed a pair of teenage hitchhikers named Edward Hillard and Debbie Griffin. The pair were traveling from Gainesville, Florida to Love Valley, North Carolina, and they were most likely picked up by this guy. Edward was found outside of Macon, Georgia on November 2nd. The poor kid had been shot five times. Near him were items belonging to his travel companion, Debbie Griffin, although her body had not been recovered. While police were still searching for Debbie's body, Knowles struck again. Of course he did. So this is one of those murders that really chilled me to the bone. They all do, but the details of this crime were relayed by Assistant Police Chief Charles Osborne in a documentary that I'll link below, and he's the voice that you heard in the intro of this episode, and it just stuck with me. Stuck with him, too, obviously, after all these years. So Knowles was traveling through Milledgeville, Georgia, and he met 45-year-old Carswell Carr, and they made fast friends. It is thought that Knowles broke into Carr's house. I don't believe he was invited in because, as the assistant police chief chief states, it is not believed that Knowles was aware that Carr's 15-year-old daughter, Amanda, was home. You'll see why he thinks that in a minute. Okay, so Knowles ties Carr up and brutally stabs the poor man with scissors. 
He stabbed Carr in such a frenzy that the tip of the scissors broke off. Ultimately, Carr died due to heart 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 attack or heart failure, not the stabbings, but he was obviously screaming loud and for his life because then it's believed that 15-year-old Amanda came downstairs to see what in the world was going on. Like, Dad, what's, what's wrong? Then when Knowles attacked her, strangling her with a nylon stocking, he then stuffed another stocking so far down her throat that the medical examiner had to extract it. Lord. He's just enraged. There's, he's an animal. He's, he's a an wild an animal. animal. Then this sick asshole attempted to defile her dead body. He tried to rape her corpse, but ultimately failed because no semen was found present. Assistant Police Chief Osborne said that their home looked like a, quote, wild animal had ransacked it, but they were unable to find one single usable print in the house belonging to anyone other than the family. So he was careful he either wore gloves or he wiped everything down that he touched. It was later learned that Mr. Carr, the night before his murder, had been spotted at the Pegasus, a local gay bar. The bartender there saw him speaking to a tall, handsome young man with reddish hair. That fits our guy, Knowles, perfectly. However, the bartender couldn't recall if the pair had left separately or together. Just a few days after the murders, a sales clerk at a local department store in Macon came forward and said that a young, handsome, redheaded man had come in to purchase a tape recorder and four blank cassette tapes using a credit card issued to Carswell Carr. The murder victim. Right. So he stole a credit cards. So she had read about this gruesome death in the paper and immediately called the police after Knowles had left. Now, Knowles is getting pretty ballsy and stupid. And you think he'd get the hell out of Georgia, but he didn't. He drove his latest victim's stolen white Chevy Impala to Atlanta and got himself a cozy room at the Holiday Inn. And it was there that he would meet Sandy Fox. And once again, this story takes a crazy ass turn. What hasn't with this dude? I know. This is the first time he's really stuck around after murdering somebody. It is. He's kind of fucking up. Or like you said, he's just getting, he's like, you can't fucking catch me at this point. Fuck you. So Sandy Fox, by the way, it's not F-O-X, it's F-A-W-K-E-S. So Fox. Fox. Fox, yeah. So Sandy Fox was a hard-hitting British journalist. And the stars aligned one night so that she would cross paths with this disgusting monster, Knowles. So Sandy first spotted Knowles in the hotel bar, and she thought he was hot. And she described him as a Robert Redford lookalike, which, <laughs> which I mean, I, I guess, not really. I don't know. Anyways, Knowles noticed her as well and offered to buy her a drink, which she, of course, accepted. Yeah. Because she thinks he's hot. Knowles told her that his name was Daryl Golden and that he was a businessman from New Mexico visiting Atlanta to oversee a court case involving a restaurant chain that his father owned. He's just a bullshitter. Fuck. Sandy would later say that this guy was giving off the impression that he was desperate to be liked, and she found it endearing, I guess. Anyways, Daryl Golden was hitting on Sandy pretty hard, and he made it clear that he wanted, like, to sleep with her that night. She said she resisted his advances at first and even joked that for all I know, you could be the Boston Strangler. Wow. <laughs> Bitch worse. <laughs> Bitch worse. <laughs> In 
Anyways, at the end of the night, Knowles accompanied Sandy back to her room where they attempted sex, but she found that he was impotent. And we're going to hear this quite a bit. He's from survivors that he is impotent. She just talked it up to him having too much to drink at the bar, which, I mean, it happens. In reality, I think it's one of two things. I think he either doesn't enjoy sex unless it's with a non-consenting partner or he's struggling with his sexuality during this time. No, because he's had sex one with of the two. other people, but it's always rape. It's always a sexual assault. Yeah, so it's maybe like it, consensual it has to be consensual. Fun. It's hard to say because he's no longer here to give us a reason, which, thank God, I don't need a reason. So the following morning, Sandy assumed that Daryl Golden would get up and leave, like a one-night stand. But to her surprise, he actually drove her to a work interview that she had scheduled for that day. Then after, the pair went for more drinks at a local bar. It was in this bar that Golden made a weird statement. He said, would you write a book about me? I don't have long to live. Okay. And she was like, huh? (laughs) So Fox was set to fly back home, but she was intrigued enough with this guy that she postponed her flight and hung around a little bit. After a few days together, she started to get the ick. She got the ick. She states later that there were times when she detected something was just off with this guy. And she even admitted to being genuinely afraid of him. But it was never enough to make her run away from him. The pair even ended up driving to Florida together since Fox had a business meeting there with the attorney general, which is kind of ironic. (laughs) About a week after their initial meeting, though, they parted ways. But don't forget Sandy because... We're going to come back to her. Shit gets wild. During the pair's week-long tryst, Sandy had introduced Knowles to Susan McKenzie, also from the UK. And Susan took a shine towards Knowles. She felt sorry for him, and she found him to be lonely yet charming. She just felt bad for the guy. So being a predator, Knowles took advantage of that. After him and Sandy parted ways, Knowles headed straight for Susan. He offered to drive her to her hair appointment one day, and she accepted. Now, once Susan was in Knowles' vehicle, he drove a little ways, and then he pulled over, pulled a gun on her, and demanded sex. Susan fought Knowles, and she fought hard. She knocked the pistol out of Knowles' hand and successfully used the opportunity to open the passenger side door. Knowles had even grabbed a handful of her hair, but she was able to escape with her life. She hailed a passing motorist and went straight to the police to tell them what had happened. Well, police immediately issued a bulletin containing descriptions of the attacker and the vehicle he was driving. And all officers were instructed to be on the lookout for a man named Daryl Golden. That's the name she knew him by. Well, Knowles was spotted by a West... Palm Beach police officer after the officer had recognized the white Chevy Impala. So, of course, he was pulled over. But before the officer could even get out of the car, Knowles exited his vehicle and then drew a sawed-off shotgun. Lovely. The officer, who had just opened the car door, dropped to the pavement and stayed there until Knowles drove away. Now, Knowles was all too aware that the cops were going to be all over him as long as he was driving that white Impala. Exactly. So Knowles ditched the car and went on foot to find another car and in turn another victim. 
So Knowles picked a house in the West Palm Beach area to be his next target. He knocked on the front door and was greeted by a wheelchair-bound woman named Beverly Maybe. He identified himself as Bob Williams from the IRS and asked if he could come in. And Beverly was, like, puzzled, but she consented because she didn't want to seem uncooperative. And she let the man inside where he instantly dropped the act and told her that he needed a hostage and a getaway car because the police were on his tail. Yeah. The young woman remained calm. She told him she didn't own a car, she can't drive, but her sister, Barbara Tucker, who was on her way home, did have a car, however. So Knowles sat and waited, like, with the lady for Barbara to arrive. When Barbara Tucker walked into the house with her six-year-old son in tow, Knowles pounced. He tied up Beverly and told the six-year-old boy to go and play in another room, which he did, and he forced Barbara into her beige Volkswagen Beetle. He drove his terrified hostage to a hotel in Fort Pierce where Knowles tied her to the bed and attempted to rape her, but he couldn't perform. It's not known why, but instead of killing Barbara, Knowles left her alive in the hotel room before escaping in her VW bug. Back at Barbara's house, her sister, Beverly, had wiggled free from her bindings and had alerted police what just happened. And her description of her assailant matched so closely with the infamous Daryl Golden that detectives knew it was the exact same yeah. person. They dusted Miss Maybe's homes for home for Prince, and this time they got some. Along with Prince, Miss Maybe was able to positively ID a mugshot of Knowles. Finally, police had a name, and in all points, Bulletin went out requesting area patrols to be on the lookout for Paul John. Knowles. I mean, hell, his picture was even televised with a warning to residents that he was most likely armed and dangerous. So everyone's like freaking out right now. But And they don't know that he is a mass murderer. No, they don't know that. They think he's just a sexual assault, like assailant. I really want y'all to watch that documentary by 11 Alive that we're going to link below because it interviewed um, uh, Barbara, Barbara Tucker. Yeah. And... She went on to say how she, like, kind of fell in love with him for a bit. Like, it's really insane. I don't know if it was just, like, Stockholm Syndrome or what it was. But she wanted to give him, like, a head start. She kind of felt bad for him, you know. So, I don't know. I just really want y'all to go and watch it because it's super interesting. You know, not giving my opinion either way. But So, detectives were able to track down Sandy Fox, the British journalist, and question her about Golden. When Fox realized that her ex-lover was a rapist and a murderer, she was shocked, to say the least. Yeah, no crap. Detectives asked Sandy if Knowles had given her any gifts, and actually, he had. She handed over a Mickey Mouse watch that he had gifted her during their time together. When detectives checked it against the inventory of missing items from the car crime scene, the watch was determined to have belonged to 15-year-old Amanda Carr, the young girl who walked in on Knowles murdering her father before she was killed. Y'all, Sandy Fox ended up writing that book about Knowles that he wanted her to write. And if you're a true crime fan, you may have heard of it. It's called Killing Time. Oh, shit. And it's one of the best-selling true crime books of all time. It was published back in the 70s. It's one of the most popular books of all time. Yeah, I've even heard of it. Hard to get your hands on these days, but, I mean, I've read excerpts. 
I haven't read it, but it's apparently, it goes into great detail about their time together and speculates why she was spared when so many other women were not. She actually wrote several books before her death in 2005. Just a crazy story. Definitely look her up when you get a chance. (laughs) So, things aren't looking too promising for Paul John. No, no, he's kind of fucked at this point. The cops are on his tail looking for him in his stolen beige, beige Volkswagen. And you know who else drove a beige Volkswagen? Ted Bundy. Yeah, that's crazy. Another parallel. Well, Knowles was pulled over on November 16th in that Volkswagen. And I'd like to tell you that this is where it ends for him, but it's not. Of course not. So the officer that pulled him over was 35-year-old Florida Highway Patrol Trooper Charles Eugene Campbell. He turned on his siren after spotting Knowles, pulled him over for questioning. Well, before Officer Campbell could even get a hand on his service weapon, Knowles drew his gun and ordered the trooper to cuff himself and get in the back of his own patrol car. He's redoing what he did when he was 19. Yep. Knowles then abandoned the VW bug and drove off with Officer Campbell in toll in the patrol car. <laughs> it's crazy. This is already bad enough, but Knowles makes it worse. He's driving a stolen police car, and he knows he has to ditch it ASAP. So this is what he does. Okay, get this. Knowles turns on his siren, and he tricks a James Meyer, a very unlucky random motorist, into pulling over near a wooded area. Knowles then got out, forced the kidnapped highway patrol trooper and James Meyer into the back of Meyer's blue Ford Grand Torino, and then drove off with his two hostages in tow. I'm losing my voice. I'm sorry. It's all right. The following day, November 17th, two Georgia sheriff's deputies spotted the blue Ford traveling along Highway 42. Roadblocks then went up everywhere, and Knowles evaded them for a while, actually, until 1.10 that afternoon when he encountered a blockade near Stockbridge, Georgia. Instead of giving up, Knowles just crashed right through it. (laughs) He just drove the car. Just the fuck right through it. The impact sent the car careening off into a tree. Good lord. And smashed it. There's pictures of it that I'll post of the blue Ford Torino. All smashed to smithereens. Knowles was bloody, but he was okay and mobile enough to jump out of the smashed vehicle and run into nearby woods. All the while firing shots from his revolver at the officers. (laughs) Inside the crashed Ford uh, Grand Torino, the officers didn't find what they were looking for, which is Officer Campbell and James Myers. They were still missing. So, for several hours, police searched the woods where Knowles fled into. They used helicopters and tracking dogs, and it seemed he had gotten away until finally Knowles emerged from a clearing and was spotted by a local resident who happened to be out hunting that day in the woods, and his name was David Clark. So, Mr. Clark saw the bloody man and approached him with his hunting rifle. Luckily, Knowles had run out of ammo, so Knowles tried a different approach with David. He said pitifully, please help me, like I'm hurt. So David took Knowles to a nearby neighbor's house where they called police, and Knowles was taken into custody. So, pretty easy, right? Yeah, no, I don't think so. After... (laughs) After being treated for a gunshot wound to the leg and a minor head injury... Knowles was taken to Henry County Jail, and he, of course, refused to tell his captors where the Florida patrol officers and James Myers were. He wouldn't even tell them if they were dead or alive. He was playing games. 
he was enjoying this too much and he was going to play this out for a while. However, on November 21st, the two abducted men were found. Deer hunters in Pulaski County found James Meyer and Officer Campbell handcuffed together, arms wrapped around a tree. Both had been killed from one shot to the head, execution style. Just absolutely tragic. Yeah. Yeah. And one, and since they were together, you know, one had to watch the other be. Watch the other one die knowing they were Yeah. Yeah. So sad. So. Knowles is in custody, and he's meeting with his lawyer. Remember Sheldon Yobitz, <laughs> our sleazy lawyer who has the confession tapes? So Knowles had one issue that he wanted to address with his lawyer. And the most important thing to Lowell, Knowles, Lowell's, Knowles, <laughs> get it right, Courtney, is that he didn't want to be executed. Super scared of that. Like, of course. They all, they all are, that. man. And that's another... Um, Parallel to Bundy, because Bundy was super scared to be executed, which is just so ironic to me. They're such brutal, horrible people, but... They still fear death. They fear death, yeah. More specifically, he didn't want the electric chair, because that's a bad way to die, he said. Shit. His victims didn't get a choice in how they died, Paul, so that's okay. You can. See, back then, in some states, to include Florida, death row inmates could choose how they are killed. So Knowles was like, I'd want to go out via firing squad smoking a cigarette. But ultimately, I just don't want to be executed at all, he said. Sounds like he was just scared, was all it sounds like. Yeah. Anyways, for someone who was seemingly scared to die, he tempted fate. (laughs) Douglas County Sheriff Earl D. Lee asked Knowles how many people he had killed. And remember, he hadn't heard the confession tapes and at this time didn't even know that they existed. So Noel smiled and traced the number 18 on the sheriff's palm. Like, that's super creepy. Very creepy. It's like, give me your hand and then trace the number 18. So the sheriff was like, okay, well, where'd you kill him? And Knowles wrote down on a piece of scrap paper, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Ohio, Virginia, Connecticut, Mississippi. To other interrogators, Knowles gave different answers. Sometimes he said he killed 35 people, and sometimes he said 18. But ultimately, investigators could only solidly link Knowles in those days to 18 definite homicides. So as you can imagine, when word of Knowles, his arrest and his potential crimes got out, photos of him started circulating in the papers. And he's not, like if you were going to cast him in a movie, he's not a hideous looking guy, right? So you would cast him as like the jock or maybe like the stoner or something, like the cool guy. But women went crazy, as we often see with Bundy and the Night Stalker. and It's just like, it's crazy. They thought that he was dark and mysterious and they coined, that's when they coined his new nickname, the Casanova Killer, which is gross. And it's a societal phenomena that I just can't get my head around, but it happens. It happens every time. It happens every time. And Knowles was loving this attention. This is what he wanted. This was his goal all along, to be infamous. So this newfound fame may have sparked his next surprising move. Mm. He mentioned the confession tapes to police. If he would have just kept... Well, I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did. But, like, he's just wanting more and more and more of it. It's like a fame. drug. Yeah, he wants to be Bonnie and Clyde. So he mentioned his confession tapes to police, and the drama that ensued was crazy. I'll briefly touch on it, but 
to see the full story, go and watch that 11 Alive documentary on YouTube. Because Yavitz is actually still alive and interviewed in it. Okay. So you get to see the full story. And that poor dude didn't know what was on those tapes at this point. He, like you said earlier, he thought this dude was <clears> still just a petty thief. I wouldn't say poor dude, but yeah. No, I mean, I'm just saying he didn't know what he had. Yeah, possession. he didn't know he what thought he, he was his, his client was this petty thief that just kept getting in trouble. He did not know he had a brutal serial killer with confessions in his possession. Or he may have. We don't know for sure if he ever listened to We don't to know him. for sure. I wonder sometimes when I see him, but... Who knows? I mean, it's up to speculation. He's never going to admit it, obviously. Yeah, but most most lawyers, even then, they do people people. It's very common for people, not just criminals, but people mm-hmm. to say, "Hey, when I," it's like a will. It's like a living will. It's like a verbal one. Like when I die, here's this. Give it to so and so. Right, right. So most of the time, lawyers don't even mess with that. They're just like, "Cool, I'll put it over here. And when it happens, I'll do it." So after he brought up the tapes, a federal judge was like, "Hmm, we need to hear these tapes." Yeah, no shit. So he ordered. This is a very like general story. So he ordered Knowles's lawyer Yavitz to hand over the tapes. Yavitz refused and used attorney client privilege as an excuse. He refused to let us marshals know where the tapes were. They even questioned Yavitz's wife, Patsy as to their whereabouts, but she refused too. She was like, I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, this landed both him and his wife in jail for contempt of court. Yeah. Finally, Yavitz gave in because he didn't want his wife to go through all this. And he surrendered the tapes along with Knowles' last will and testament that he had given him. So they have the tapes now. On December 18th, Knowles agreed to show Douglas County Sheriff exactly where he had disposed of Trooper Campbell's service revolver before he executed him. Okay. I don't know if I don't know if he was offered an incentive to cooperate or if he was toying with investigators, but either way he agreed. So Sheriff Lee and Georgia Bureau of Investigations agent Ron Angel put Knowles in a transport vehicle and set off for Henry County where Knowles assured them that they would find Trooper Campbell's revolver. Lee drove while Angel sat in the front passenger seat and Knowles was in the back seat with his wrist and ankle cuffs on. Mm-hmm. On U.S. Interstate 20 near Lee Road, Sheriff Lee noticed that Knowles had lit a cigarette and was smoking in the back seat. He was like, How the fuck did you do that? So he slowed the car down, turned around, and he asked Knowles to hand over the cigarette. Knowles, of course, he's not one to comply, put out the cigarette and lunged one of his wrists free while the handcuffs dangled from the other. So he was free. Yeah. He leaned over the front seat. And grabbed the sheriff's gun, which actually fired through the holster. While Lee was trying to fight off Knowles, Ron Angel grabbed his own service weapon and fired three shots into Knowles. Good. Fuck that, dude. One bullet entered Knowles' chest and hit a bone and exited out his right side. Another hit him underneath the right arm in the armpit area. And the last bullet lodged in his brain, killing him instantly if the other ones didn't kill him before that. Yeah, the second one would have killed him. After his body was examined, it was determined that Knowles freed himself from his handcuffs by using a broken paper clip that he had smuggled in the cuff of his sleeve. When they cleaned out Knowles' jail cell, they found a photograph of an electric chair that Knowles had ripped out of a magazine, maybe used as an incentive to avoid it. I don't know. know. Yeah, probably. Who knows? They also found a letter written to his ex-fiancee, Angela Kovic, In the letter, he compared himself to Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, and other outlaws 
that had died in dramatic ways. He wrote in the letter, and I quote, when this is over, I will be even more famous than them, or even more so. Okay. Stupid. Enough about him. Knowles was dead, but his victims and their families contended, uh, continued to suffer. And I want them to be the last thing we speak about on today's episode. Not to waste, not that waste of space that killed him. No, no shit, fuck him. So you remember little Lillian and Milet Anderson? Yep, the two girls. Yeah, who Knowles abducted and killed. Well, Jack Anderson, their dad, sued the Knowles estate for damages in excess of $2,500, citing emotional and mental pain and suffering, which obviously. Remember, they never were able to find the little girl's bodies, so the family just never got the closure, and Jack Anderson died in 1994, still hoping that they were still alive, like still thinking that there was a, a chance. There was a chance. The family never moved, and they never changed their phone number. Just in case the girls would return home, which is devastating. After Jack Anderson passed, the family finally bought a memorial headstone for both the girls. And it reads, in loving memory, missing since August 1st, 1974. And it has both girls' names and dates of birth on it, but no end date, you know. So please, guys, go and visit thecharlieproject.org to see the girls' profiles. The Charlie Project profiles over... 14,000 cold case missing people and serves as a publicity vehicle for so many missing people who are often neglected by press and just forgotten too soon. So make sure to check them out. I'll link the show notes below where you can find them. Then in April of 1976, skeletal remains of a young woman were found off of Highway 96 in Peach County, Georgia. And then they were handed over to, I guess, the morgue and they remained there for 37 years unidentified it was a jane doe in other words i don't think they had the technology in 76 to yeah then guys in january of 2011 the mother and sister of imogene sanders you remember her mm-hmm. the hitchhiker yeah the hitchhiker 13 years yeah 13 years old mm-hmm. um well the mother and sister of uh ima they submitted samples of their dna to the austin County, Texas Sheriff's Office, and the office sent the samples to University of North Texas Center for Human Identification, and they were in turn uploaded into the Relatives of Missing Persons database and compared to the DNA of unidentified bodies. All very complicated, but a match was found, and the Jane Doe being stored in the Peach County, Georgia morgue for the last 37 years, was in fact their daughter and sister, Imogene. So remember how he called her Alma? Mm-hmm. Knowles obviously misheard his victim when she stated that her name was Ima. However, this discrepancy really kept her family from getting the answers that they so longed for, because on his tapes, he said that... He said Alma. He didn't say He Ima. said Alma, yeah. yeah. So in December of 2012 was the first time Imogene's mother had ever heard the name Paul John Knowles, and she mentions that in the documentary she's interviewed. She had never even heard that name before. Even after he had wreaked such havoc in their area, and what's more, remember how it had bothered Knowles so much that Ima's remains had been devoured mostly by animals and that her lower uh, jawbone was missing? Well, those claims were substantiated when they saw that the lower jawbone of their Jane Doe was also missing. Right. 
So it was confirmed that her killer was indeed Paul Knowles. So for all those years, they thought that maybe she had just run away, and but they were still holding on to hope that, much like the Andersons, that Ima would return home. Yeah, they never had answers. They yeah. Know, every family is going to sadly have a sliver of hope. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, as time goes on, that hope's going to diminish, but they're always going <clears> to <throat> hold out for that long chance that maybe they ran away. Maybe they were kidnapped. And maybe they were mad at me. They wanted to maybe start a new life. Whatever yeah. reason, that maybe they're just going to show back up one day. Anything. And... I know I keep bringing up that documentary, but it's really cool to see her mom and her sister, her sister that she was babysitting the night she was taken. Yeah, yeah. Um, in her four-year-old. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she was little. Yeah. Four or six. Four, six. She was six or six. But can you imagine police having your loved one's body for 36 years, like in your hometown right down the road? That's where your loved one is, and you just think that she's dead this whole time? That's just... <laughs> I know, but um, it is what it is. So it's safe to say that this guy was a complete and utter monster, and it's terrifying to me even more so that there are groups of people who idolize and sexualize these guys, you know? Yeah, I think those people have some mental illness issues uh, themselves. It's beyond horrific. There are crimes that this man committed that are still unsolved to this day, and I hope that with DNA advances, that's going to change. Because I cannot imagine dealing with not knowing what happened to my loved one for over 40 years. Exactly. You hold out hope. Yeah. You hold out hope and there's just never any closure. No, a lot of those families and a lot of those people whose children they were have probably passed away at this point. Because, I mean, this is 50 years ago. Because you want to mourn, but you can't even start the mourning process until you know. You don't know. you You can't mourn their death because you don't know that they're dead. Yep. It's just... The ripple effects of one man's horrific actions caused so much pain and suffering for decades after he's gone, you know, after he's gone. Not yeah, and he went out in a quick fucking... Exactly how he wanted. Blaze of glory. Asshole. He got everything he wanted. But what does make me happy is not a lot of people know about him. I mean, they don't know his name, you know, and that's what he wanted. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's... And I think... I'm speculating here, mm-hmm. but I think... Law enforcement, you know, criminal justice system with him and, and, and probably some of the media too, because that's what he wanted. He wanted the notoriety. They probably silenced a lot of it. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't publish a lot of stuff like, like this dude wanted to become as famous in Bonnie, as Bonnie and Clyde. Fuck him. He's not getting what he wanted. That'd be one of the only good things the media did. <laughs> good for them if that's the yeah, case. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to go down that rant. Like, we could do a whole episode on the media and how they fucking hero like make freaking heroes and super famous people out of these mass murderers and these mass shooters muckraking fucking horrible people they make them celebrities for a day which is why these people do it Mm -hmm. there's a lot of mass shootings in the world that happen and a lot of them are driven by by the notoriety notoriety. they're nobodies they're bullied they're they're nothing they know that the media is going to make them famous and i think in this case they did the opposite they're like this dude wants to be fucking famous fuck him Good. Make him a nobody like he always was. Because he is a nobody. I think it's, it's always drives me, it's been ironic to me. He's a limp dick nobody. He's a limp dick, he is a limp dick nobody. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, and he's, he, he, it drives me <clears throat> nuts because I'm, you know, I'm a huge gangster fan. We both mm-hmm. are gangster fans. It drives me nuts that he wants to be famous like Bonnie and Clyde and all this. Bonnie and Clyde killed like two people. They're bank robbers. 
they didn't even really start killing people until their one partner that they were running with, part of their gang, started shooting people. So he's like, like, dude, they're not even killers. They're just famous because they're not even famous because of how bad their stuff was. They're just famous because the story was captivating, right? Yeah. The two yeah. lovers, the star-crossed lovers. The, you know, she I think was for the time, it was super she, shocking for a woman. She was, I was about to say, she was like one of the first real like woman gangster, like super criminals because everybody back then, it was just the guys doing this stuff. And then John Dillinger, of course, everybody knows John Dillinger, public enemy number one. I mean, he was literally the FBI's first most wanted person ever in history, like the gangster of gangsters. I laid in, in Chicago, I laid in John Dillinger's chalk outline. I know you did. You told me that. That's... Could have died there, happy woman. I'm just I kidding. We're Not way really. too excited when you were telling me that story. <laughs> <laughs> I also had the best pizza in my life in Chicago. Shout out to Chicago. But it's okay because I've been, I've probably <clears throat> seen every Bonnie and Clyde movie there is. So. No, yeah. You like <laughs> and them. I would love to go see their car. Doesn't mean you want to be like them. Oh, I don't want to be idolized and be go out to blaze of glory and be famous like them. I just am fascinated by their story. Yeah. But this guy just really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, you know, honestly, you end this you can't end this better than just saying like fuck this dude. Yeah. Well, fuck him, guys. Let's just stop talking about him. Fuck him. Media mm-hmm. did it, so we'll do it. And we are going to post the winner of the book giveaway, Tracy's story. On Instagram, so make sure you go to our Instagram to check out and see who won. Yep. The story we talked about last week's podcast, the one of uh, one of our actual listeners, like a friend of the show. Yep. Uh, so we'll post that. We are on Twitter now. So according to, I think, mentioned it earlier, at Evil Pudding Pod uh, is our Twitter. Uh, we're on Instagram. And uh, if you're here this long, then I would like to be the first to tell you that Tracy agreed to a part two. Part two. Of uh, Tracy's story. So we're going to be. We may even get him on the show. I don't know. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Oh my gosh. We should do that. Even if it's for a few minutes, we should just talk to him. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, if y'all want us to do another giveaway, let us know what you want us to do. Give us some feedback. But uh, until then, I'm going to sign off and go rest my voice for a little bit. <laughs> so I have to, a voice to, for next week. You need to do the struggle right now. <laughs> uh, love you guys. Be good to each other. And we'll see you next week. Bye.